As we begin this morning, I'd like to read some, a couple of verses from the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, beginning at verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. You, O Lord, that yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth, yours is the dominion, O God, and you do exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Father, as we come to you this morning, we, along with David, do acknowledge that in you is greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. You are the sovereign one, King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has chosen of your own will to send your Son to die for us and to become our Savior and our King. And the one, as we study through these, these passages in 1 Samuel, the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that you made to David. Father, I pray that in our hearts and in our minds, each and every day, we will honor you, magnify you, acknowledge that you are sovereign. And Lord, I pray that you will guide our thoughts this morning, give us understanding and insight into your word. Bless each and every man and woman in this room today. And Father, as your word is proclaimed in the service and in other classes, we ask for your divine presence and blessing as we commit ourselves to you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'd like to read beginning at verse 12. This is God speaking through Nathan the prophet, speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. After successfully bringing a measure of peace and security to Israel, and after building him a palace, and we talked a little bit about this palace, uh, you know, the scripture calls it a house of cedar. And as we mentioned, that's kind of a euphemism for a really a magnificent structure that was built on behalf of of David in his new capital city of Jerusalem. At that point, David became acutely aware of the fact that God, the God who enabled him to have all this and to do all this, was still dwelling in a tent. And he thought in his mind, God should have a great temple, something far greater than, than my palace. Uh, when he expressed this desire to Nathan the prophet, who was sort of like his chief spiritual counselor at that particular time, Nathan said, yeah, sounds good. Why don't, why don't we go ahead and do that? But you remember, as we read in, in the earlier part of this chapter last week, 
that God came to Nathan in a vision. And, and God said to David through Nathan that very night that David was not going to build a temple for God. God hadn't had a temple all these years and David wasn't going to be the one to build that temple. Instead, his son would be the one to build that temple. These verses which we read this morning, beginning at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, they comprise what is often referred to as the Davidic covenant a unilateral covenant that came down from God to David saying, I will bless you and I will establish your throne through your son and that throne will be an eternal throne. This is the Davidic covenant. Saul, you remember, had disobeyed and God had removed him from the kingship and had removed his family from the kingship over Israel. But God makes a very interesting statement to David. He says that when your son sins, I will correct him with the rod of men, the strokes of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him. And we discover in later passages, when these things begin to be fulfilled, uh, God says, I did not take the throne from Solomon nor from his descendants for the sake of my servant David. God had made this unilateral covenant with David that his throne would endure forever. We know, of course, that Solomon would begin his reign spectacularly. Whoever prayed a greater prayer than Solomon in his humility that, that God would just simply give him wisdom. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for might. He didn't ask for power. He just asked for wisdom. And God was very pleased and, and God gave him the things he didn't ask for, but we also know that he then built God this great temple and he prays one of the most magnificent prayers in all of Scripture. And yet later in his life, as we well know, Solomon violated God's commands which he had given in Deuteronomy through Moses that the king should not multiply wives unto himself and then of course his wives perverted his faith and he moved away from walking rightly with God, and he badly tarnished his reign. But for David's sake, God disciplined Solomon. He did not take the throne from Solomon, but when Solomon's son came to the throne, he lost ten of the tribes of Israel, and the divided kingdom was born. But the kingdom still remained, the throne of David still remained in Jerusalem for centuries after that time. The significance of this covenant, both to David and to Solomon, and to the nation of Israel as a whole is highlighted for us in, in the beautiful psalm known as the 89th Psalm. I'd like to turn and read some, some of the passages from the 89th Psalm because this really highlights what I'm trying to emphasize here this morning. Psalm 89, beginning uh, reading first of all the first four verses. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou wilt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever to build up your throne to all generations. And then going to verse 30. If his sons, these are David's sons, forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, 
If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquities with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. The significance of this covenant, both to David and to Solomon, is highlighted in those passages from the 89th Psalm. If you read at the beginning of the 89th Psalm, you'll discover that it was written by a man by the name of Ethan the Ezraite, if you look him up, you discover that he was considered to be a, a man of great wisdom during the time of the reign of Solomon. So he's looking back at what, it had, what it, God had promised, and he was highlighting God's promise as it revealed itself in the reign of Solomon. The eternality of the throne of David was not a result of the continuity or the faithfulness of David's descendants. It was not like Solomon was a man after God's own heart throughout his reign and that Rehoboam and then all the way down through the long list that these are all great men who walked as David did. You all know that that isn't true. And so the eternality of the throne, the fact that the throne of David would last forever did not have its root in the faithfulness of David's descendants, but from the fact that through David would come the Messiah. That is what gives the throne its eternality. When Paul the Apostle was in Antioch of Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey, first missionary journey, he spoke these words which you find in the 13th chapter of Acts. Let me read a couple of verses from the 13th chapter of Acts, beginning at verse 22. After he had removed him, this is referring to Saul, after God had removed Saul from being king over Israel, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And I think all of us know, because it's so often quoted at the time of the first advent as we worship what we call Christmas, the famous passage which is given in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, which again emphasizes the everlasting nature of God's covenant to David and the throne of David. When we re read in uh, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. You know, Jesus is even uh, connected to the Father in this sense because the eternality of the Son is co-equal with the eternality of the Father and the oneness of the Trinity is highlighted here in this passage. He is the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, which are two terms which are also used of David, as we'll see. And then, and from then on and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So I think it's very clear to us from Scripture, from our own understanding down through the years, that the throne of David would be an eternal throne because God had made this covenant and God said, I do not lie, I have said the truth to David. But obviously humans fail. Humans are, are, are given to, to sin. And Solomon would sin even as David sinned. And his, his followers would sin. In fact, most of those who came and ruled on the, on the physical, earthly throne of David, most of those were, were not godly men who sat on that throne. And, and yet God fulfilled this promise through the coming of Jesus as the Messiah to be the son of David and to sit forever on that throne. At the time of the birth of Jesus, the Davidic earthly throne had been extinct for nearly six centuries because David's successors had become apostate. However, since God is absolutely true to his word, Jesus was born of the lineage of David so that he might fulfill the promise of the eternality of that throne. And again, we see this highlighted, if I might read a couple of verses to you, from the very first chapter of Luke, Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So over and over again from both Old and New Testament, we have the confirmation of the eternal nature of the throne of David and its eternality being focused in Jesus but it began with a righteous and godly man named David. Not because he was worthy, but God chose him to be the vessel through whom he would pour out redemption, ultimately, in Messiah. Now, God had denied to David the right to build the temple. David proclaimed that he was going to build the temple, and God, of course, heard his proclamation, and, and, and so God spoke to Nathan, and, and Nathan revealed God's word to David. But was, was God upset with David for wanting to build the tabernacle, or the temple, I should say? Well, absolutely not. If we turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 15. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people from Israel, of Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house but your son, who shall be born to you, he shall build a house for my name. So God was pleased with David's desire. David wanted to do this for God, and God was pleased, but God said no. God said no. I have chosen Solomon to be the one to build that house. 
The temple that one day would be built by Solomon, it was a glorious temple. And by the way, you go to Israel today, you will see absolutely nothing of that temple. It was totally and utterly destroyed. The site was, was leveled. In fact, you go there today, you will not even really see anything that remains of the uh, Her Herodian temple. You will see the retaining wall of the Temple Mount, but you will not really. Uh, certainly underneath there are, but certainly you will not see anything on the surface that has, has any remnant of the Herodian temple. They have both been totally destroyed. These were mortar and stone structures. But in Christ, you and I have become the living temples of God Himself. He has chosen to dwell within His people, within His church universal, within those who have come to know Him by His name and have chosen to live according to His word. He has put Himself within us and we have become the temples of the living God. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples in John 14 these words, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Him, her, it's, it's the universal word for humans. The Spirit of God dwells within us. We have been told by the Scripture that we're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the ultimate time when we will stand in the presence of God. So individually and corporately, He dwells amongst us. He's here today to speak to our hearts and to move within us. Most of us, of course, are familiar with Paul's words to the Corinthians uh, when he said these, this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We are temples of the Spirit of God. He dwells within us, chooses to use us for His purpose. Now the physical temple called the Temple of Solomon and the physical temple later, the second temple called the Temple of Herod, they're both totally gone as I highlighted a moment ago. They've been gone for over 1900 years. And although the Spirit of God does dwell within us, His people, the Church of the Living God, as a living temple, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when the physical and the spiritual will be melded into one visible structure, which is described for us in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. We will know the presence of God in our midst then as we cannot now. And in Israel, as Israel never did know, even though they had the tabernacle and then they had the temple, they had the ark, and at times they had the pillar of fire when they were in the wilderness, but they never knew the presence of God as we can know it. And we do not know it now as we will know it in our midst that day 
when we all stand in God's presence witnessing the holy city coming down out of heaven. This is all part and parcel of the Davidic covenant. It's a wonderful covenant. It's a covenant that not only made tremendous sense and, and gave tremendous hope to David, it's one that still has its impact on, on us today. Let's read on and see what David's reaction is uh, to God's words through Nathan in the latter part of uh, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Then David, beginning verse 18, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet... This was insignificant in thine eyes, O Lord God, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. And again, what more can David say to thee? For thou knowest thy servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word, according to thine own heart, thou hast done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, there is no God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on earth is like the people of Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land, before thy people whom thou hast redeemed for thyself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For thou hast established for thyself a people, thy people Israel, as thine own people forever, and thou, O Lord, hast become their God. Now therefore, Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant in his house, confirm it forever, and do as thou hast spoken, that thy name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, hast made a revelation for thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words are truth. This is what David would, I mean, what Jesus himself would say. Thy word is truth. And thou hast promised this good thing to your servant. And now, therefore, may it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken. And with thy blessing, may the house of thy servant be blessed forever. Sometimes when we may not know how to pray, just pray one of the prayers of David. Modify it a little to fit your situation. They're beautiful prayers. David was overwhelmed with God's incredibly merciful promises. And he responded with this beautiful prayer. One of the things that you will notice about a true man of God is he knows his sinfulness. He knows his unworthiness. He, un he, he acknowledges and recognizes the mercy of God. Because the closer we get to God, the more we recognize how unworthy we are of Him. I've mentioned this before, but, but years ago this, this image came into my mind as I was thinking about this, this kind of, uh, th this truth. And that was that when we first come to know the Lord, it's kind of like we're in a room 
and uh, the light is on, but it's like a candlelight, and, and we can see, and, and, and uh, truth is growing in our hearts, but we don't see real clearly. And, and the closer we walk with the Lord, the more intense that light becomes, and the more the intense, the greater the intensity of the light, the more dirt we see, the more dust we see, the more stuff we see that needs to be cleaned up, you know? You ever walk into a, a home with just a candlelight, and it looks like a beautiful home, but you turn the lights on, and everything is covered with dust and junk and cobwebs that you don't see with a candlelight, you know? And, and so it is, as we walk with the Lord, the light intensifies, and the cobwebs become more clear. <laughs> And the more we realize that we're unworthy of Him and we need His cleansing blood to pour over us and to wash us. And this is what you see in David, the man who cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He entered in before the Lord, we're told, and I believe he walked into the tent that he had built there and where the Ark of the Covenant had been placed. And, and I don't think he walked right into the very presence of the Ark because that was a dangerous thing to do, but he, he, he walked into the outer area of the tent there. Is sitting a posture for prayer? Well, it was for David. <laughs> it says he sat before the Lord and he prayed. In fact, you'll find in Scripture any posture you want for prayer, you'll find an example of flat on your face, standing before God, standing with arms aside, standing with arms raised, sitting, kneeling, whatever. Physical position of the body is not as critical as the position of the heart in prayer before God. David's act in, in doing this is extremely exemplary because he is the king, the king who bows before God, the king who acknowledges his insignificance before the king of the universe, the Lord of all creation. Thus, in his humility, David demonstrates the heart of true prayer, true worship, true praise. And that's where really worship and prayer and praise become genuine. It's where the heart is true before God. It isn't the form. It isn't the function. It's the heart that makes a difference as to whether it's true, whether it's genuine. And so it would be for David. What we discover in this prayer is he, first of all, he acknowledges God's omniscience. You already know my heart, O oh God. And he acknowledges God's patience, his omnipotence, his redeeming mercy, and his eternal blessing. David could stand in our midst today and relate to us all. And we could relate to him in all of these truths. In verse 27 of this prayer, he related that it was due to God's revelation to his heart that he had the courage to even pray this prayer. How do we know how to pray before God? Well, Scripture says we don't really know how to pray. But how do we know how to pray the best we do? By God's revelation, through His Word. The more we know His Word, the more we know Him. The more we know Him, the know, more we know how to intercede and, and to lay out our heart before Him. It is only through His revelation in His Word that we have the hope and that we have the faith to pray God-honoring and effectual prayer. Too much prayer is, is uh, peremptory. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pious speech. The old deists used to believe that prayer's only function was to titillate the ears of those listening. So you had to pray a kind of, pray a, kind of a, a flowery prayer so everybody would be pleased with your prayer. 
because they didn't believe God listened or God was going to do anything about it anyway. But I don't think we believe that. The factual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the scripture says, a righteous person avails much. It makes a big difference. And we can pray that effectual prayer and God-honoring prayer if we truly honor God in our hearts and in our minds. David's humility as he prayed this prayer, and I, I think that's really the key. The key to the Christian life in so many ways is humility, which is something most of us have a real hard time with. We're not born with a great deal of humility usually. Uh, the human nature is to be proud and, and, and to be arrogant and, and self-aggrandizing. But in God, we become humble. Others honoring. We're to love others as we love ourselves. We're to esteem others more than we esteem ourselves. And David's humility in this particular prayer is reminiscent of a prayer that was prayed by his distant ancestor, the founder of the nation, a man by the name of Jacob. Jacob, you remember, had uh, gone to Paden Aram and gotten himself embroiled over there, and finally he was on his way back under God's direction, and Esau was going to show up, the brother he had run from some two or three decades before, and, and he's going to face Esau. And as he stood there before God, he prayed this prayer. Jacob prayed, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, by that he meant his stick, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies, two groups of people. He had a huge family and all of these others that he was arriving. And he gives God the credit. Gives God the credit. Jacob did not proclaim himself a self-made man, and neither did David. God's mercy and, and his loving kindness should be no less astonishing to us than it was to David and it was to Jacob as they prayed these prayers. I think that if we have that attitude of astonishment at what God does for us, that we're on the right track and beginning to understand what it means to be a true child of God. Well, let me uh, at least read some verses in the 8th chapter of 2 Samuel. After hearing David's words to Nathan, to David through Nathan, and after hearing David's great prayer, we move to the 8th chapter, and it's like a bucket of cold water. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death, and one line to kept alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And he went to restore his rule at the river. And David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots. And when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants of David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and Barathai, 
cities of Hadadezer, King David took very, a very large amount of bronze. It's kind of like when you're at uh, camp, you know, and you're in the camp and, and you're having this wonderful service at camp and everybody's on the mountaintop and then camp is over and you have to come home <laughs> to real life. You know? and, and that's kind of what the eighth chapter is. You're, you're on this mountaintop of, of David and, and his encounter with God and all of a sudden you got David massacring people and thousands dying and hamstringing horses and all kinds of yucky stuff going on here, you know. And this helps us to understand that God is in, is with us through the nitty-gritty of everyday life. <laughs> now, we're going to talk a little bit about some of these things. Not today, we don't have time, but, but God is not any less with us in the midst of everyday life as he is with us on the mountaintop of spiritual experience at camp or church or wherever we may have it. He wants us to walk daily hand in hand with him. And that's part and parcel of being a true child of God. But it has to be learned. We have to acknowledge it. It doesn't just happen all automatically. And that's why the Christian life is work. We have to work at it. We have to purposely pursue God, purposely study His Word, purposely learn how to pray and, and to practice prayer in order for the Christian life to be what it looks like as we read the sublime passages as David's prayer and, and yet carry it over into the day-by-day, nitty-gritty, hard-knocks kind of life that we all face. The Davidic covenant is not diminished by David hamstringing horses or laying a bunch of guys out in line killing two-thirds of them, you know? Because in the midst of all of that, we read these words, the Lord helped David wherever he went. In the midst of all that, the Lord helped David wherever he went. So next Sunday, we're going to look at the beginning of the building of the Davidic Empire. God didn't just give David a throne over Israel. God gave David an empire from the brook of Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. Territory that Israel, after the days of Solomon, would never again control to this very hour. They almost did back in 1973 at Yom Kippur War. They were on their way, but the UN got involved and didn't let it happen, you know. But, uh, but here, here's the old kingdom that Saul had right here. And this is the Davidic Empire. And the great large, large numbers of people within that empire are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're not Hebrews. They're Arameans. They're Phoenicians. They're Moabites. They're Ammonites. They're Amalekites. They're Midianites. They're Philistines. I may have said that before, but Arameans of various kinds. And we'll be looking and talking about some of them uh, next week. But uh, all of this was brought under the control of David for the security of Israel and for the glory of, of David's throne and, and for the glory of the Lord God Almighty. And with that as a background, God would enable Solomon to build this great temple. A, a temple um, that would stand for 400 years to the glory of God. But we'll look at some of that next week. John? Yes? They don't have that little Philistia on the coast. Yeah, that. What about it? How come they didn't conquer that? David did conquer it, but uh, he allowed them to retain what we would call autonomy. He didn't absorb it within uh, his empire, but he forced them into a position of subservience. Tributary status, I guess we could call it. Why? It's a good question. Maybe because it was too much evil to absorb. <laughs> this is now the Gaza Strip. 
Yeah, more or less. <laughs> it's the Gaza Strip is, yeah, this actually the Gaza Strip extends down a little bit further, but yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Still a problem, isn't it? <laughs> the unabsorbable. And you'll notice, and I'll point this out too next week, Phoenicia was never absorbed either. They were allied to Phoenicia, actually. Phoenicians would help them build the temple by supplying workmen and, and material to build it. Both the Philistines and Phoenicians were pagan people. One great pagan from Phoenicia uh, would be a real stick in the mud, too, in, in Israel and cause a great pain for Elijah. And to this very day, I never hear of anybody naming their daughter after that Phoenician woman, Jezebel. 